This message comes from Wondery. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire. But when their fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift. Blame It on the Fame dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Follow on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. Did you know that a prepaid funeral plan is one of the greatest gifts you can give your family? Plan your life celebration in advance to protect your loved ones. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. When I was born, my father said I was so tiny he could hold me in his hand. I think I was only about two pounds, and I couldn't live on my own. I was too weak to survive. So the hospital didn't have anything to No, offer. they didn't have any hope for me at all. It was just, you die because you didn't belong in the world. In 1920, a father made a split-second decision during a moment of desperation. My father was looking for a blanket or a towel to wrap me up in, and somebody said, where are you going? He said, I'm taking it to the incubator in Coney Island. In this episode, how a sideshow attraction saved thousands of lives and changed the course of American medicine. It's the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Camila Kashani. Even if you've never lived in New York City, you've probably heard of Coney Island. It has a boardwalk, a theme park, Nathan's hot dogs, and this really rich, colorful, and kind of bizarre history of freak shows. You know, like tattooed ladies and sword swallowers. Well, in the summer of 1903, a brand new sideshow opened. An article in a local Brooklyn newspaper at the time quoted the barkers from the boardwalk who were trying to get people to come see the exhibit. Here's what it said. Come this way, ladies and gentlemen. See the tiniest little bits of humanity in the world. Warm, nourished, and fed. Baby the future president's inside. All done by the baby incubator. Step right in and watch the babies grow well and strong before your eyes. Baby incubators can be found in most hospitals or NICUs today. But it wasn't always that way. In the early 1900s, a man named Martin Cooney helped pioneer this technology. But when he brought incubators to the U.S. from Europe he was rejected from the medical community. So each summer, for 40 years, he funded his work by displaying the tiny babies at Coney Island's Luna Park and charging admission. It cost 25 cents to enter. They thought he was crazy, but his daughter was a preemie, and he saved her, you know, he treated her, and she was alive. So then he decided to do something, and that ended up saving you. Thank God for Coney Island. (laughs) Lucille Horn was born premature in 1920, and at the age of 95, she sat down with her daughter, Barbara, to talk about how she ended up in one of Martin Cooney's incubators. The doctor said there's not a chance in hell that she'll live. And my father said, but she's alive now. He held a taxi cab and took me to Dr. Cooney's exhibit, and that's where I stayed for about six months. Do you know how your parents knew about the incubators? They saw the exhibit and the honeymoon. You had to pay to go in, and then the babies would be all lined up in special units, like a crib. It was an enclosed crib. How do you feel knowing that people paid to see you? It's strange, but as long as they saw me and I was alive, it was all right. (laughs) I think it was definitely more of a freak show, something that they ordinarily did not see. Thank God my parents went in, because if they hadn't looked at them, I wouldn't be here talking. 
But I remember going down there when I was older to see the babies. I was walking on the boardwalk, and I walked past it, and I realized my parents had told me I was born in the incubator. You met Dr. Cooney, right? Yes, he happened to be there at the time I went in. And I went over, and I introduced myself to him. And there was a man standing in front of one of the incubators looking at his baby. And Dr. Cooney went over to him, and he tapped him on the shoulder. And he said, look at this young lady. She's one of our babies. And that's how your baby's going to grow up. It made me feel strange as if I was a, something that wasn't normal. You know, it was funny. He was very nice. He said, we're very proud of you, and we're very glad you came here. I remember he gave me a hug before I left. And you must have told him you went to nursing school? I did. When I received my cap in nursing school. He sent you a corsage? Yeah. You know, there weren't many doctors that would have done anything for me. And here I am, 94 years later, all in one piece. I'm thankful to be here. was Lucille Horn, who was one of the incubator babies of Coney Island, speaking with her daughter, Barbara, in Long Beach, New York. There's a lot of mystery around Martin Cooney. He may or may not have been a real doctor. There's no record of his medical license or degree in the U.S. or Europe. But even so, with the help of several nurses, he's credited with saving at least 6,500 babies. And he did this for 40 years with his exhibition. He died in 1950, shortly after incubators had been introduced to most U.S. hospitals. Something else that Lucille talked about a lot in her interview is the fact that she was born a twin. They told me that I had a sister. She was never named, and she died at birth. I wish she had lived, but she's up in heaven, and I'm down here. Lucille died two years after recording her StoryCorps interview. She was 96 years old. Her daughter Barbara wrote to us, Mom always wondered, what would it be like to have my twin sister around? She never knew what happened to her twin's remains. When making arrangements for Mom's burial, Evergreen Cemetery informed us that the family plot had three available graves. One grave appeared to contain the remains of an infant, also born May 1920. We buried mom in the grave with her sister. At birth, they had been separated. In death, they were reunited. When we come back, we'll hear from someone else who made Coney Island their home. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Subaru. In June, as part of the Subaru Loves to Care initiative, Subaru and its retailers partner with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in their local hospital or cancer treatment center to give warm blankets and messages of hope to cancer patients. Subaru and its retailers will have supported nearly 300,000 patients by the end of this year. 
Subaru is proud to be the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's largest automotive donor. Learn more at Subaru.com care. We wanted to leave you with one more story from Coney Island. It comes from Sound Portraits Productions. That was Dave Isay's radio documentary nonprofit before he founded StoryCorps. Today, Coney Island has one very famous, very old wooden roller coaster called the Cyclone. But for decades, there were two iconic coasters. The other one was called the Thunderbolt. Back in 2000, the city of New York decided to tear it down. This was a hard moment for May Timpano. In 1946, May was working as a waitress on Coney Island when she met Fred Moran, who owned and operated the Thunderbolt roller coaster. They fell in love, and for 40 years, they lived together in a house that stood under the roller coaster. It's hard to say how you get to know a person when you're waiting on them seven days a week. I knew Freddie. I got to know Freddie because he came in every morning and every afternoon. And then when we got friendly, he was in pretty near every three, four hours. <laughs> he was big and heavy. I didn't care. He was, uh, I liked him. I liked his personality. He was funny. He was good to me. Whenever he would put his arms around me, I feel the world can, nobody could hurt me. I went out with him a few times, and then one night he came and he says, when you finish, you want to come up my house? I said, where do you live? He says, under the roller coaster. And I said, you're kidding. He says, no, no. He says, I'll pick you up and we'll go to my house. He says, okay. So we went over to the house. I was hungry, so he went over to Nathan's to get frankfurters and french fries. And he had a bottle of Remy Martin's brandy. And we were sipping that, listening to records. That's how it started. And then for 40 years, we had a lot of fun together. The cyclone has a bigger dip, a bigger fall. The thunderbolt was rougher in the turns. You know, when you went down, you bounced out of the car almost. The car would be practically sideways. If you were a stranger and you come in the house and you would hear it go over, you'd say, what's that, thunder? You know, it sounded like thunder. A few things, you know, broke. My perfume tray fell off one time. Pictures would be a little slanty. Not much. I had wall-to-wall mirrors, three bedrooms, three bathrooms, a large living room, dining room, kitchen. But it was uh, like living in the country. I was in the country in the middle of the city. I got a call from California. A man out in California called me. And he says, May, do you know what they're doing today? And I said, no. He says, go down to Coney Island, they're tearing your house down. I said, you're kidding. He says, no. I didn't own it anymore. I got dressed, I went down, and sure enough, they were tearing my house down. Sad standing there looking at it. it. Seemed like every all my memories just wiped out. Uh, but everything changes. I don't know if it was for the better. We'll see when they park the cars there. It looks like it's going to be a parking lot. 
lots of times, you know, I think of this and before you know it, I'm in tears and I say, no, I want to get away from that, you know. But uh, it's very sad thinking back, you know, on it. I don't want to remember anymore. Oh, to live on Sugar Mountain With the Barkers and the Covered That was Mae Timpano talking about living underneath the Thunderbolt roller coaster at Coney Island. That's all for this episode. It was produced by Jasmine Morris and Michael Garofalo, who's our executive producer. Our senior producer is Eleanor Vasili. Max Youngrice is our associate producer. Our technical director is Jarrett Floyd. Special thanks to Myra Sierra, Chris Dykeman, and to David Miller, who produced the Sound Portrait Story. Find out what music we use on our website, storycore.org. While you're there, you can also check out original artwork by Lynn Lucia. For the StoryCorps podcast, I'm Camila Kashani. Catch you next week. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This message comes from the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. What makes a short story work? Explore the minds of writers like Otessa Moshvig and George Saunders on the New Yorker Fiction Podcast to find out. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a message from This Is History with Dan Jones. Let renowned historian Dan Jones guide you through a landscape of rivalry, treachery, and murder, bringing to life the epic struggles of Henry and Edward. Listen to This Is History, Season 4, now on your favorite podcast platform.